Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team talking about the latest in biotech. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and joining me today are my colleagues. Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. Karen Koch tusman director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Steve Osden, Washington editor. On today's podcast, creating CAR-T therapies that don't cause cancer. Iovance gets a world first approval. Highlights from our survey of the translational literature and Sarepta's gene therapy gets a date with FDA. But first, anti-China biotech bills are raising alarms at U.S. biotechs with biotech CEOs worried they could lose access to CDMOs Wuxi Aptech and Wuxi Biologics. Last week, Steve and our colleague Stephen Hansen and I did a deep dive podcast into the issue to see what's driving the bills and what's next. BioCentury subscribers can access this special podcast via our website, and other interested listeners can go to biocenturypodcastspecial.com for access. The revelation that CAR T-cell therapies designed to cure cancers can give risk to new malignancies jolted the industry, but alternative CAR T technologies that avoid or reduce the risk are already in development. Lauren took a look at these new technologies what did you find, Lauren? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, and to start out, I just want to say that from what we know now, these risks are very rare. When you're talking about advanced cancers and indications where CAR T cells are currently used, there's no question that the benefits outweigh the risks. But that said, anytime a drug can cause cancer, I think it makes sense to look for ways to improve that. What we've seen looking at the technologies that are in development that follow these first-generation CAR-Ts is that a lot of these next-generation technologies actually may address the risk of secondary cancers, even though they weren't necessarily designed to do that. So the two big categories are non-viral CAR-T cell therapies, strategies to express the CAR without using a viral vector, and then safety switches. What we know so far is that it seems to be the lentiviral vector that's used to express the CAR in these first-generation products that can lead to cancers. And again, it's very rare, but basically these lentiviral vectors integrate into the genome pretty randomly. So there's always a chance that it could integrate into the wrong place, into an important tumor suppressor, for example, and that could ultimately lead to a cancer. And, you know, this is a theoretical possibility. Recently, we've realized that it can actually happen and has in a few cases. I guess the obvious next step is why not just use an AAV or a vector that doesn't integrate? But the problem there is that integration is really important for how CAR T cells work. When you put them into a patient and they encounter their target, they need to expand. And all the cells that they expand into need to express the CAR to be really effective as they are. So if the DNA isn't integrating as it happens with lentiviruses, you're not going to get that effect. Um, the solution is to control where you're integrating, where you're putting that gene into this, the CAR T cells DNA. And that's exactly what gene editing is supposed to do. So, so far, the most 
popular, the most advanced or one of the most advanced strategies is, is using CRISPR to control exactly where you're putting the car. So, you know, you're not disrupting or hopefully not disrupting a gene that that turns out to be important. Lauren, you have this really awesome picture in the story that really lays out the different strategies that companies are using in a non-lenty approach and and what companies are doing what. Um, you talked about the sort of ex vivo car T integration without the drawbacks of lenty, but you also highlighted some in vivo strategies that work a little differently. What's the strategy there? How do those work? So for the in vivo strategies, some of these still do le- use lentiviral vectors, but many of them use different technologies like uh, lipid nanoparticles to deliver mRNA. And in those cases, it's not integrating. You're just whatever cells are targeted by the lipid nanoparticle are going to express the car. But you're not delivering a viral vector. You're not delivering something that the immune system is likely to recognize upon future deliveries. It's not a complex manufacturing process. It's something that is, it's a simple injection. It can be repeated as needed. So the hope is that if you need to increase the amount of CAR T cells in a patient, you can just redose them. And, and that, you know, we don't know yet how often that will happen or what exactly that will look like because these have not been taken into patients. But I think that's the expectation and the hope that you maybe don't need that expansion, that integration. So so what about the stop switch you mentioned? Yeah, so that was an interesting piece of the technology that it emerged as the CAR T-cell technology was emerging many years ago. Back then, there was this expectation that CAR T's we're going to have a lot of different kinds of toxicities, which they do. There's the cytokine release syndrome and the different neurotoxicities that these can cause. And they're very serious and very rapid. And to address these, many companies started developing switches, different kinds of safety switches, but one of them is a sort of a suicide switch or a kill switch that can eliminate the cells relatively quickly if they're causing a very serious problem. Um, that doesn't exist in the CAR T's that have been approved, I think, because there have been other ways that have developed to manage those risks. We can now now control cytokine release syndrome, so it's not as dangerous as it was five years ago, for example. But this may be a solution to the cancer problem. So if you have a way to kill the cells that have become cancer cells, you sort of have an automatic anti-tumor strategy built in. You can deliver whatever that switch is and and hopefully eliminate the cancer cells. So there's a chance that that may become increasingly important again. Thanks for that. Lauren, Lauren's story can be found on biocentury.com. It is the latest in a series of CAR-T articles that she has written. And if you dig into our archives, you'll find all of them. On Friday, Iovance achieved a regulatory milestone decades in the making, the first ever approval of a tumor infiltrating lymphocyte cancer therapy. Karen, you were following this and you wrote that the next step for the company is proving that they can scale this product. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal for this technology to finally join the ranks of FDA approved products. Last year, I actually met someone who was treated for melanoma decades ago with long-term survival. And I immediately asked her, I was like, 
was it immunotherapy? And she said, yeah, it was TILS. She was one of Steve Rosenberg's first patients. And so seeing the impact that that technology had, you know, even administered decades ago, and now having it turn into a commercialized product that can be manufactured at scale is a big deal. The question becomes, you know, what is that scale and what is that speed and how is this going to reduce to practice as the rubber beats the road in uh, the real world? And so it was interesting to see how Iovance pointed out that they have um, their facility in Philadelphia for manufacturing and that between that facility and a, a nearby CDMO, they think that that they can treat up to several thousand patients annually. Um, and they also plan to increase that capacity over the next few years. And the reason, you know, scale and manufacturing for CAR T cell therapies, that cell therapies in general is a big challenge. And when it comes to TILs, I mean, these are cells that you're pulling out of the tumor. They are tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. That's what defines them. And so they're exhausted. They've taken a beating. You know, they are uh, perhaps not the healthiest T cells of all time. And so part of the challenge is developing manufacturing practices and uh, Iovance says it has that allow for the scaling up, uh, the rejuvenation, the expansion of these cells in a way that creates enough product to treat patients. And they say that each dose of the product now called Amtagvi contains 7.5 to 72 billion viable cells. This is a very exciting milestone for the field and just one where the, you know, the numbers around numbers of cells, numbers of patients and things like manufacturing time um, will really matter. And so they say, for example, that when the patient's cells arrive at the manufacturing facility to when they are shipped back out, that's a period of 34 days and they'll be looking to improve that in the future. But yeah, it's a big deal for the space and and for patients who will benefit. Two things come to my mind. One is um, you mentioned a CDMO. Iovance partnered with Wuxi Aptech or a division of Wuxi Aptech to develop the manufacturing process. And they're going to be manufacturing until Iovance has got its manufacturing, its own manufacturing on stream. It's interesting because, as Jeff said at the top of the show, you know, there are members of Congress who are trying to prevent Chinese biotech companies from operating in the United States. And one of those is Wuxi Aptech. So this is kind of an example of a capability. Um, you know, I think I said in our podcast that some people look at, at Wuxi Aptech and Wuxi Biologics as force multipliers, so things that allow small companies to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do. And this, is, I think, is an example of that. Uh, another thing just that's interesting to me is connecting what Lauren was saying with what you were saying in the nexus is Steve Rosenberg. He at NCI, he really came up with both TIL therapy and CAR-T some time ago, and uh, a long time ago, decades ago, and now they're both getting into the, in the mainstream medicine. So it's really interesting to me, this path from NIH basic research into something that's actually transforming people's lives. You know, I think it's maybe not so well recognized that Steve Rosenberg was part of the origination of CAR-Ts as well. How did that come to be? You know, Kite was a collaboration between between um, Steve Rosenberg and, and Ari Baldegrun was was Steve Rosenberg's fellow, and they're they're very close. And then that's that's how Carti was created. He came out of NIH, out of NCI. 
And it took Iovance to get it across FDA's goal line. It will be interesting to see how this one plays out. Hey, our East-West Biopharma Summit is just around the corner. We'd love to have you there. It's in Singapore in early March, and we'll be talking about Asia's arc of innovation. Let's take a quick break so you can hear about it. This March, Biocentry, Bay Helix, and Insights partner, McKinsey & Company, bring the third East-West Biopharma Summit to Singapore, the gateway to Asia. At the summit, you will get a first-hand look at how the smart money pouring into Singapore plans to scale up the emerging life sciences ecosystem. You will also meet the key players from Asia's innovation arc, from India through Southeast Asia to China, Korea, and Japan. If you are a biopharma executive looking for partners or investors, or a life sciences investor looking for portfolio companies or limited partners, now's the time to meet Asia leaders face-to-face -face in Singapore. Register today at biocentryeastwest.com. Okay, Karen, uh, you are getting ready to push send on this month's distillery collection. Let's hear some highlights from the distillery and our science spotlight feature, which together reflect our team's monitoring of the translational literature. Thank you, Jeff. You know, I love to talk about the distillery and our science spotlights. So basically, we monitor about 27 journals, all the abstracts combing for translational opportunities that we believe represent near-term opportunities for our audience. And so that includes within our distillery, our look at studies coming out of academic labs that don't have an obvious company affiliation yet. And so our potential licensing and partnering opportunities around new molecular targets for disease and also new compounds, perhaps against known exciting targets. Some of the highlights from this month's issue, which uh, will be out real soon, include new obesity targets. So a space that everybody is watching. And, you know, as we've covered in, in one of our past dives, the current paradigm of obesity therapy with the GLP-1s and, and all of that primarily involves controlling appetite and controlling glucose regulation, glucose homeostasis through sort of insulin glucagon type pathways. And it was interesting to see coming out of the preclinical academic literature, a series of obesity targets that act in pretty different ways. Several of them actually promoting the sort of metabolic processes of either increasing lipolysis, so breaking apart fat molecules into usable energy. And that was through a target called PAC4, a serine threonine kinase. We also saw a GTP binding protein called RALA that increased mitochondrial activity and fatty acid oxidation. And a G protein coupled receptor, GPR3, uh, which increases glycolysis, so the utilization of glucose. And so it's kind of more about these biomolecular processes of boosting the way that fats and sugars are used by cells. So that'll be really interesting to follow. Karen, it sounds as though some of the new targets that you've mentioned might address some of the shortcomings with the marketed obesity drugs. Could you talk about how this might affect the balance of lost fat versus lost muscle, for example? 
Yeah, I think it will be interesting to see if these new targets can bring about what our colleague Stephen Hansen calls a sort of higher quality weight loss in the sense of decreasing fat without impacting muscle. We've seen some mechanisms that do this. So in terms of company activity already, we've seen, of course, for Santa's Bio with a mechanism that specifically goes after fat loss. And that's via modulating lipases that break down triglycerides. And um, of course, Versanus was taken out by Lily back in July. And so here, you know, among the mechanisms I mentioned, I think it'll be interesting to see if the lipolysis targeting activity of PAC4, for example, could fit into that niche of hitting the fat loss without muscle loss. It seems to me there's going to be a really high barrier of entry for anything that's going to come to this space, given how effective the drugs are that are out there now. But one of the big questions is whether anything that you're seeing or anything that's in the pipeline can be something that's more easily tapered off. Because I think one of the, the big concerns about the drugs that are out there now is that people might have to be on them forever, right? Or else they gain all of the weight back. Yeah, that definitely remains to be seen. Um Perhaps by modulating pathways outside of appetite suppression, that may be a bit more possible when it doesn't rely on the continuous modulation of food intake, but rather on changing the sort of metabolic set point of adipose tissues, for example. But um, of course, all of this would need to be seen. And, you know, everything in the distillery is by definition preclinical. So still many hurdles to clear in terms of proving their utility but some interesting opportunities that companies may be interested in and investors as they seek out their next portfolio investments uh, in the world of obesity. Cool. Karen, one, uh, one tool at BioCentury that you helped create is the distillery dashboard. You want to give a quick word on that? Oh, yes. So if you go to biocentury.com slash distillery, you will be able to get a tabular view of all the distillery items we've published since 2014. You can download that to Excel, slice it by things like the author's um, geographic location, the target, and look for opportunities in a kind of systematic way that we've sort of indexed across all of these distillery items that we've written over the years. And so uh, we'll be having an analysis coming up of the trends that we saw over items captured in the distillery over 2023. Stay tuned for that. But yeah, the dashboard is a resource for anyone to do their own deep dive analysis on things like what is a new target for a given disease area. All right. Well, in our last segment, let's talk a little Sarepta. FDA accepted an efficacy supplement for the Biotech's gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, set a June 21st PDUFA review goal, and according to the company, FDA will not convene an advisory committee meeting to discuss the application. Steve, clear path to approval here? You know, it, it looks that way. Um, nothing's done till it's, it's done, but Peter Marks has made public statements to me and in other forums that certainly um, suggest that that's what he's looking at. Look, there's, a, there's two issues that he's going to have to address. One is, is he going to convert or is FDA going to convert the accelerated approval to full approval? And the second one is, what's the indication? How broadly the indication 
would be if they do that, or even if they keep it as accelerated approval, are they going to expand the approval beyond four to five-year-olds, which is where it is now? One of the things that I find um, telling, interesting, and perhaps disturbing is that, at least according to Sarepta, FDA, Peter Marks, have decided not to hold an advisory committee meeting to discuss this application, to discuss the conversion, um, possible conversion to a full approval and the label. I find that really interesting because the Cellular Tissue and Gene Therapies Advisory Committee voted last May eight to six. So it was really a split, close decision uh, that the overall considerations of benefit and risk supported an accelerated approval. And they were really hinging that on the outcome of the confirmatory trial. Um, that trial uh, completed. It didn't hit its primary endpoint. We've talked about that on the pod, and I've written quite a bit about it. It didn't read it, reach its primary endpoint. There was a consensus at CBER among the staff against granting accelerated approval in the first place. I think there's still a strong feeling among staff there. My guess would be against converting this to a full approval. I think that a lot of people would like to see an advisory committee hash these issues out to talk about them publicly and also to have FDA talk about these issues publicly. The reason it's important and it's interesting is that the kids, the, the boys, mostly boys, who would receive this gene therapy are going to be rendered ineligible to receive other in, uh, gene therapies that are in the pipeline. It's a cruel and progressive disease, and their parents are going to have to make a decision about whether to treat them if the label is expanded, whether to treat their kids with this therapy and get whatever benefit it might give, or wait and hope that something else is going to come later that might be better. In public remarks, Peter Marks has said explicitly, he said he doesn't believe that that's FDA's decision to make. He believes that's a decision that parents should be empowered to make. That's kind of a controversial view of what FDA's role in all of this is, but that's that's what um, he has said. So quite interesting, quite serious. And I think it also, uh, another element of it is that other gene therapy developers are looking at this and saying, you know, is it setting a precedent for using accelerated approval and biomarkers for approval of gene therapies? Steve, so thinking about the, uh, advisory committee meeting issue. I'm wondering if it's really necessary, what it would add in this case. You know, it, it's a shame that they're not doing it, but I'm not sure how much the confirmatory trial data actually changed the conversation around how this gene therapy is working. You know, it, it's kind of confirmed what the initial data suggested. It seems to, if it's working, it seems to work best in the younger patients. Um, you know, I, I think they've hashed out a lot of the conversation about who this should be approved for. Um, in the past meeting, I no look. I th I think that there's a there's a real benefit to having a public discussion of these issues. One of the threshold issues here is a therapy that's missed its primary endpoint, and they're hinging the uh, approval. Sarept is asking them to hinge the approval on two things. One is secondary endpoints, which they hit, but they're statistically significant. But the um, differences that they detected are extraordinarily small. And the second thing is, is that they're trying to say, well, the primary endpoint wasn't sensitive enough, and you can look at elements that went into making up the primary endpoint, and there's trends toward benefit there. Is that enough to approve a drug? As far as I know, there isn't a precedent for FDA saying that a drug has missed its primary endpoint, 
but statistically significant results on secondary endpoints can overcome that. Usually that isn't their practice. If they're going to do that, it seems to me there should be a public debate about it. There should be a public discussion about it. And sure, maybe Peter Marks or maybe someone else from CBER is going to discuss publicly why they did this, but that's not the same as having an advisory committee meeting where it's pressure tested, where there are people who are asking them tough questions and um, requiring them to answer them. And I think that everyone would benefit from that. All right, Steve, Lauren, Karen, thanks for all the thoughts. We will catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.